in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. In our evening service, we've been going through uh, the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves tonight in the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Let's pray one final time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. We do thank you uh, for the gift of faith, Lord. We thank you that for many of us in this room, we testify to that of your saving grace, uh, showing us the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this great hope. Uh, we still need your grace to live every day by faith, and we fail in, in many ways, and forgive us of our sins, Lord. But as we come to your word this evening, we come eager, we come willingly, and we come desiring that you might teach us and meet us. So send your Holy Spirit and come in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the church uh, in Philadelphia tonight, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, if anyone's confused about that, but Philadelphia, uh, that was in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we come to a church uh, that is small but mighty, that is few but faithful, that this church didn't have anything uh, that stood out about it. That there was no great compromise, there was no great false teaching that Jesus had to, to uh, address to it, that he has no, nothing negative to say about it. And yet, uh, there's nothing uh, said of any martyrs or, or any uh, sort of grave persecution uh, that, is, that is going on of this church, but it, it, it has simply held fast to Jesus' name. It, it has simply not denied his name, and it has simply sought to obey his word. So it shows us that the faithfulness that Jesus commends is not always flashy and dramatic, but maybe small and often unnoticed, and yet real and true and commendable. And so uh, we'll dive in now to this letter. For those of you who are visiting us, we've had a similar structure that we've looked at in each of these letters that you'll see in your outline there. So number one, the church addressed. Philadelphia was a town, a city 30 miles southeast of Sardis. which was our last letter. It had fertile land. It was rich in wine production. It had a textile and, and leather production industries were popular in this city. It had a good relationship with Rome. And, and as we've seen with all the other cities, uh, the wide variety in pagan religion was available in, in this town uh, as well. That its, its patron goddess was Anatus, which was a goddess of Persian origin. Also worshipped was Dionysus, the goddess of wine, as you would think, in this wine-producing city. And all other of the pantheon of, 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 of Greco-Roman gods could have been found in this city. 
Along with that is the imperial cult. This is the state religion of the Roman Empire, where temples would be erected to to worship uh, deceased emperors that have been deified, or the goddess Aroma that stand uh, stood for the empire. And so this church would have uh, been in the midst of a very pagan culture, a very religious culture, but not a, a Christian culture. As we see in this letter and, and, and later uh, church history as well, there, there is a Jewish community that had been established in this uh, city. We know that in this letter there's a conflict between uh, the Christians and the Jewish community. We don't know anything about the origin of the church in Philadelphia, but maybe it it likely came out of the Jewish community, as often was the case. Uh, We do have a second century letter from the church leader Ignatius to the church uh, in Philadelphia. So as we come to this church, it has a similar environment to every other church that we've addressed uh, in these letters. It's a thoroughly pagan culture, Uh, that would have attempted uh, this church to compromise in many ways, uh, as we'll see. And yet, in amidst all of this, uh, they've held fast to Christ. So that's the church addressed. Secondly, now, the characteristic of Christ emphasized. That we noted in these letters that Jesus, as he's addressing uh, this, uh, each church, he highlights a unique characteristic about himself that usually harkens us back to chapter 1 where there's this great vision of the Son of Man. And, and, and so that vision sets up uh, what uh, to, is to come later in chapters 2 and 3. And the unique characteristic of Christ emphasized at the beginning of the letter Uh, usually has something to do with the topic that he's addressing uh, in the body of the letter. And so we come to this letter, and and it's it's from the the words, in verse 7, of the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And so three things are said here of Christ. He's called the Holy One. This should recall, I think, and and alludes to the book of Isaiah where over and over uh, the Lord is called the Holy One of Israel. And in fact, later in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, God on His throne, it tells us that they cried out with with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, Holy and True. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so God is called holy and true. And Yahweh in the Old Testament is called the Holy One of Israel. And John calls Jesus here the Holy One. Which is consistent with John's pattern of applying Old Testament characteristics of Yahweh to Jesus. And, and And there's... uh, so many of them that we can't say, uh, you're, you, you just must have had a mistake, John. Do you realize that you're, you're giving the same uh, characteristics to Jesus that you're giving uh, to, that Yahweh had in the Old Testament? And he would say, yes. And the point is, Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is Yahweh, the Holy and True. 
So especially as Jesus is confronting here this church that is in a uh, that is confronting a Jewish community that's hostile to these Christians, Jesus is reminding this church, "I am the Holy One. I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God of Israel." And I'm the Holy One, and I'm the True One. Meaning, He's reliable, He's genuine, He's faithful. And so, uh, this, is, this is a reminder to this uh, community that we're told in this letter that these uh, synagogue of Satan uh, lie about uh, this people. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So these Jews are not telling the truth, but I'm the true one. The Jews may be speaking falsehood about you, church, but Jesus is the true one. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. And so he reminds this church. Thirdly, Jesus says, I have the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shut and no one opens. This is an allusion to, to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Isaiah 22, 22. And, and, and the Lord is talking to his servant Eliakim and telling him of the future responsibility, at least temporarily, that he will have. And he will say, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. What's, what's, the, what's the point here? This man receives authority. The key represents authority given to the individual. And, and that's a consistent theme throughout Scripture. And, and recall Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus speaks to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and so, whatever that means there is, is Peter's getting some level of authority. I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you authority. We learned in chapter 1, now this is where this vision is a little bit uh, different here, the keys of David, but in chapter 1, Jesus says, I have, verse 18, the keys of death and Hades, which means Jesus has authority over death and Hades. So what does it mean that Jesus has the key of David? Jesus is the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. That the Old Testament promised that Jesus, uh, that, that a Messiah was coming in the line of David who would reign forever. And so Jesus is saying, I have the key of David. I am that Davidic monarch that was promised, and I have come. 
And once again, why is this characteristic emphasized? It's emphasized because he's confronting Jewish population who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is reminding these Christians, the Jews in your community are are lying because uh, I am the rightful heir of David. They should recognize this. They have the Old Testament. They should acknowledge Uh, that I have the keys of David, and you acknowledge that. So those are the characteristics of Christ given. Third, the commendation given. And I realized I didn't read the text, so sorry. I'm going to just keep going and read it as I go here. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We meet uh, this statement over and over again in these letters. I know, I know. I know this benevolent omniscience of of Jesus, that he knows his people. And we noted in chapter 2, verse 23, that we said this is is actually the, the center of all of these letters. And I think it's the central point of all these letters, that Jesus says that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, And I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus searches the mind and hearts of all in his churches. He knows our actions. He knows our commitment or lack of commitment to him. He knows our works. And he will give us according to his works. So he tells this church, I know your works. And for this church, that's good news because he has nothing bad to say. I know your good works, and we'll see what they are here in a moment. But after he says in verse 8, I know your works, he says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem like a work. Well, it's not. And in fact, it's, you could almost put a parenthesis around this statement that it's, it's a parenthetical comment that Jesus gives as he's discussing the works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What does it mean uh, of an open door? Some want to see this as an open door for ministry or, or outreach or evangelism, which is possible, but I think unlikely because nothing is said of outreach and evangelism in this text. But secondly... <clears throat> I think it means access to God. Jesus says, I, I, I set an open door before you. I, I am the one that provides you access to God. And this is why I think this is a better reading. Remember, this community is confronted by a hostile Jewish community. And maybe at one point the Christian community began in this community, the Jewish community in the synagogue, 
But then as, as, as it was clear of what the Christians were teaching, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They ostracized them. They kicked them out of the synagogues. And they said, you, you all are blasphemers. You don't really know God. You are, you are unbelievers. We don't have any of that said here, but we know based upon Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and, and what the Jews had did in other parts of the New Testament, that would have been a consistent. And so here's the Jewish people saying, we're the true Jews, you are the unbelievers, you, you are hostile to God, you are the blasphemers, but Jesus says, I set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. That Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, the rightful ruler, says, I set before you an open door. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus reminds this church, I have given access to God, and no one can take it from you because you are aligned with me. Remember, these are a synagogue of Satan. They are not the real Jews because they do not acknowledge me as the Messiah. You truly know God. I've set before you an open door. But back to their works. I know your works. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says that and acknowledges that this church has little power. That this church was on the outskirts of its society. That you 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 know you <clears throat> contra to the medieval cathedral that anywhere in the town you knew where the church building was because it's this towering thing. And that made a statement in medieval uh, Europe of, of the importance of the church in the life of the community. But as you went, you know, as you would travel through downtown Philadelphia, you wouldn't find the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia in the center of the town. That this church was small. It likely met in someone's home. It likely had no one of high rank in their society in the church. It lacked influence in its city. Maybe, maybe they were a, a, a church that had to deal with poverty. We know that Smyrna, another persecuted church, Jesus says, I know your poverty. We're not told that here, but maybe they faced that because they were marginalized from their society because of their commitment to Christ. So Jesus says, I know your smallness. I know your weakness. I know your lack of, of influence and growth. But he doesn't chide them for that. He doesn't condemn them for that. He says this, and yet... You have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
that Jesus commends this church because they, despite all the opposition that they would have faced in their pagan society, Maybe there was opportunity, and there was, to compromise, maybe to assimilate to the Jewish culture or to give in to the pagan culture to, to get along, and they haven't done that. They've kept Jesus' word. They've obeyed God's word, and they have not denied his name. And we have seen in the book of, of Revelation here in chapters 2 and 3 that there are churches that have failed to keep Jesus' word. That the church in Ephesus failed. Despite all their doctrinal fidelity, they failed to keep Jesus' commandment to love one another as he loved them. That the church in in Thyatira and the church in Pergamum uh, failed to deal with false teaching. And they they had false teachers that were causing uh, congregation members to, to fall prey to sin. But not true in this church. They've held fast to Christ and his word. Amidst all their smallness, we once again see Jesus' piercing and penetrating eyes. That that we live in a day where, where we're told that we have to we need to jump and shout and talk big and loud and, and make, make yourself stand out in the crowd. Set yourself apart. Show, show your distinction. Lift your brand and name. And isn't it comforting that this isn't how Jesus works? That he's the one who, who's, who told us to take the form of a servant. That we're not to worry about our reputation. We're not to worry about getting noticed. We may feel very weak. But, but if we're seeking to obey his word, for seeking to hold fast to his name, Jesus sees mundane unflashy faithfulness to him. That it, we know the content of these letters now, so it's hard, but, but picture if we didn't have these letters in Revelation, and we listed out these seven churches, and we asked, okay, which of the seven churches do you think would stand a cut above the rest? I don't think any of us would choose Philadelphia because we have nothing to choose from. We don't know anything else about them besides this letter. We might say Ephesus, the, the, the mother church of, of Asia Minor. Paul himself, the, they, they, had, they had the big guns. They had Paul the apostle teaching them for several years. They had Paul's uh, companion, Timothy, pastoring them. They had a, Apostle John as their pastor uh, for a time. Surely, with all these big names, they should be the most faithful church. And yet Jesus has a severe criticism of this church with their lack of love. But this church in Philadelphia, of which we don't know anything about, 
Uh, Prior to this point, beyond uh, what we have in the Bible, Jesus sees in their mundane faithfulness and says, I know your works, and I commend you for them. Next in your outline there is the coming vindication promised. Usually at this point, we, we have some criticism from Jesus to a church, but there is no criticism here. Instead, we have a coming vindication promised. Jesus says in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That Jesus says this church wouldn't be perpetually on the margins. That the Jews were, were, were saying, we're the true Jews, you're the unbelievers. And Jesus says, that's a lie. We know, Romans 2, a, 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 what is essential? A, a, a true Jew is not one externally. A true Jew is, is one who's been circumcised in their heart. A true Jew is the one who accepts the, the true Jewish Messiah, Jesus And so John is, 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 is alluding here to Isaiah 60, verse 14, that says this, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is an ironic use of that Old Testament text because Jesus is saying, I'm using this Old Testament text that referred to the coming uh, enemies of Israel bowing down uh, to them to say that Jews, your enemies, are going to come and bow to you, Christians. And what's the point? The true Jew is the one who accepts by faith Jesus the Messiah. And anyone else? Who doesn't, Jew or Gentile, is an enemy of God. So be faithful, church, because one day you will be vindicated. Because you followed the Holy One, the True One, the One who is the rightful heir of David. And these Jews who lie will bow down at your feet, acknowledging that they will know that I have loved you. You were marginalized, you were set apart, you were blasphemed among them, but I loved you, and that will be shown on that day. Why? They've kept the word, verse 10, my word about patient endurance. I think that's a good translation about that. Is they've, they've kept Jesus' word about patient endurance or perseverance. That Jesus taught his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus taught us that endurance is required of every believer. That's how these letters end. The one who conquers the one who perseveres, the one who overcomes, that's the one who gets the reward. And you, church in Philadelphia, have done this. 
You, you endure amidst hostility. You endure in your battle against sin and Satan. And you will be vindicated. What does he say? I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. What is Jesus promising here? Many dispensational interpreters of this passage see this as a promise that the church would be raptured before this coming seven-year tribulation period where God is, is, is coming uh, with wrath on, on the earth. And I mention that just because that interpretation is very popular in America, but I think that's unlikely uh, a way to read this text for two reasons. First, if, if the promise here to, to Philadelphia is of a future end-time rapture, then it's meaningless to the church in Philadelphia. Why would Jesus promise to keep them from a trial that's way in the future? Secondly, I don't think a keeping from the trial is, is keeping from all earthly suffering, but rather it's protection from divine wrath. And so we'll work out this interpretation. First, we know from the, uh, why this is rather protection from divine wrath. As we know from the Bible, the New Testament, that, and the book of Revelation, Believers are never promised to avoid suffering. That, that I just quoted from Jesus uh, in, in John's Gospel, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have affliction. You will have a distress. Secondly, this, this, this term of those who dwell on the earth, the whole world there, uh, and those who dwell on the earth, the, this is a particular language in Revelation of unbelievers who receive God's judgment. And I'll give you a few references. We won't look at them. Is chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 11, verse 10. Chapter 13, verse 8. These are all references of those who dwell on the earth. And it's clear that those are unbelievers that are under the, the wrath of of God. So it's distinguishing God's people from those who dwell on the earth. And those who dwell on the earth uh, receive God's wrath. Not that they are the only ones on the earth, but they're the, they're the, they're the earthly ones. They belong to the earth, not to the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, in chapter 7, in verse 14... Well, this is, this is the chapter where John sees a great multitude redeemed from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so these are believers. They're, they're clothed in white robes, which is what Jesus had promised to, to the church uh, in the previous week. And in verse 14, uh, John says, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia, I will save you 
out of the hour of trial that is coming on earth. Uh, In verse 14, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They were on the earth when God is pouring out His wrath, but they didn't receive God's wrath. Instead, they're clothed in white. And so when we come to this uh, uh, passage here that Jesus is promising to these believers that if you hold fast to, to Him, you will be saved from the wrath of God. That's coming on those who dwell on the earth. As, as we'll see uh, beyond uh, chapter 7 and beyond, God is going to pour his wrath out on this world. And, and believers are to be marked off. That's what chapter 7 is about. So that they don't receive the wrath of God. That's the promise Jesus gives to this church. Next, the consolation for heeding. Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Keep keep doing what you're doing. And don't let anyone take that away from you. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Once again, we meet this promise to the conqueror. This is the one who overcomes in the face of obstacles that it's required of every believer to conquer, to persevere, to to face the onslaughts of our faith and overcome. And, And Jesus promises those who hold fast to him that you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Once again, this is likely used because of the confrontation with the Jewish population. And at this point, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so maybe this Jewish community is talking about another temple. And Jesus says to these Christians, these followers of Christ, if you hold fast to me, you will be a pillar in my temple, which is the true temple and the eternal temple. It's clearly metaphoric language, but what's, what's being communicated? Pillars, are, are they're not easily moved material. You take the pillars out, the, bil- the building falls down. That these believers have a secure place with God. That's what's being communicated here. Never shall he go out of it. You'll never leave the place where God dwells. In fact, I'll write on you the name of my God. I'll write on you the name of the city of my God. And I'll write on you my new name. Once again, to have someone's name, you you were owned by them. You were marked off. So we'll see later in the book of Revelation, there are those who have the mark of the beast, which marks them off as having allegiance to the beast. And they will face eternal destruction. But those who are marked off uh, with the, the mark of God, with the name of God, they will be saved and they will be with God forever. This is the picture we have at the end of the book of Revelation, if you want to turn there. Revelation chapter 21. 
verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. John says, I see a city, but it looks like a bride. Once again, shows us this metaphoric uh, language going on. Later in the chapter, verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a high great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God's bride is now a city. So once again, is the, the metaphoric the language being used here. What's the point? God's dwelling is not, not this physical building, this temple in the Old Testament, We're told there's no temple here in the city. What's the point? The temple is now the people of God. God dwells in the midst that this new Jerusalem is described as the most holy place where God dwells. And that is where uh, we will dwell who know Jesus. And we're told in chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So Jesus says, and he promises to this church, that if you overcome, you will dwell with God forever and ever. You won't face divine wrath. You will be in that new Jerusalem. You will be a part, a pillar in that temple of God. Once again, as we've seen in in these letters, the promise in these conquering passages is the promise of eternal life for those who hold fast to Christ. So that's the consolation for heeding. And finally now, the connection to our lives and church. First, Jesus commends ordinary faithfulness. Jesus commends ordinary faithfulness. There was nothing flashy about the church in Ephesus. They had no rock star preacher, no thriving mercy ministry to the city, no groundbreaking advances and evangelistic programs that are completely changing the city. They are a small few Yet Jesus commends their faithfulness. And this shows us that faithfulness to Christ is not always flashy. In fact, it's rather simple. What does Jesus commend them for doing? They obey his word and they don't deny his name. That's what... Fundamentally, Jesus requires of us as an individual and as a church that we hold fast to his name, we don't deny his name, and we obey his commandments. And I think that's important for us as in a culture that, that's always desiring the big, the, the extravagant, the next 
major conference series, the next major uh, movement. We, we want major movements of God, but not at the expense of ordinary faithfulness. As Michael Horton says, everyone wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. And I think that's important. Even we can accept sort of uh, celebrity culture-like. That you, you've seen, you know, we, we love our, our Christian celebrities. If we could just have more Christian celebrities, our culture would just be changed, wouldn't it? And what often do, do ministries and things do? Well, we'll find that, that baseball player, we'll find that football player who, who claims to be Christ, and we'll, we'll get him to speak at our conference because, you know. And maybe they are genuine believers seeking to be faithful, but what does that say? It's their celebrity that, that causes us to be attracted to them. Rather, who should speak at the conference? Those who have proved themselves year after year. That if you're having a youth event, don't don't bring the famous 25-year-old baseball player. Bring the 80-year-old couple that has remained faithful to each other for their whole life and committed to Christ. So we we must we must remember that Jesus commends ordinary faithfulness and not neglect. Ordinary faithfulness with the pursuit of something extravagant. So give yourself to the ordinary, simple things required of you by God. And Jesus commends that. Secondly, and related to this, we must reevaluate our expectations of what is a successful ministry. We must reevaluate our expectations of what is a successful ministry. This is the age of business analytics. That, that many church growth strategies, they're, they're so focused on measurable outcome. And the point is, there's a formula. If you do the right things, you can get the right results. So that's that's... That's how we should do uh, missions and church planting. And if you do the right things, you'll get, you'll get bigger and bigger and, and more influential and more uh, successful. And the point here is, that, is not that we don't value greater impact, greater usefulness, But what if that doesn't come? What if God doesn't grow a church beyond 50 people? What if God doesn't uh, overcome and override a city? Is that ministry unsuccessful? Jesus commends this small church's faithfulness, simple obedience. So the fundamental factor in a church or ministry's success is not its numbers, 
It's not its larger cultural impact, but rather its faithfulness in obedience and not denying his name. That we, we often hear of you know, missionary or church planning strategies that we're going to take this city for Christ. That's a great ambition. But what if you only get 20 converts? But yet you've, you've, you've taught those converts the Word of God and ta- taught them to, to maintain faithfulness to Christ. So there's a subtle problem in, in some of maybe our, our language that we're, we're communicating. Something is wrong if it doesn't grow ex- extravagantly. My mind thought to, to the church there in Pakistan that it's been there for years. It's, it's maintained its relatively small number. Yet this is a church that is seeking to be faithful to Christ, seeking to bear witness, not deny His name, to seek to obey Him. And yet, Islamabad and Pakistan is still largely overcome with Islam. They're not making any larger cultural impact. So should the elders of Trinity Baptist Church say, hey guys, you've been there for years. You're not much growth. We're just going to leave you be. No. The point is, they're holding fast to Christ. They're holding fast in faithfulness. And Jesus knows this. And he commends such faithfulness. We can't manipulate, we can't plan, we can't propagate our larger success or cultural or numerical impact, but we can focus on obeying His Word and holding fast to His name. And that's what we must do as a church. That's what we must do as individuals. We must askew this business analytics model of ministry success. So, so finally, uh, don't deny his name. Very simple. Don't deny his name. As Tom Schreiner notes, the refusal to deny Jesus is one of the fundamental marks of being a Christian. This uh, text commends to us not to deny Jesus' name. As you have the opportunity to speak to righteousness and truth and the gospel in your work, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your culture. Don't be ashamed. Don't deny his name, but speak his name. That, that this, this passage commends us to, to ordinary faithfulness. And this is the faithfulness that Jesus sees and commends. This, this passage tells us, to, to slog it out in the trenches of, of our lives. And, and the trenches are those small things of, of the disciplines of our spiritual life and the means of grace and church membership and simple sharing of our faith as God gives us opportunities. And, and whether Jesus uses that for great impact, which we desire, or little impact, he commends the faithfulness. And so that should be our pursuit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he took the form of a servant, dying for us. We thank you that he is in heaven, seated, reigning over this earth. We thank you that he sees into all our lives, Lord. And that means he sees all our sins, all our failures, and yet he is merciful. He offers us repentance, and yet he sees us in faithfulness when, when no one else notices, when, when it doesn't seem that anything significant is happening because of it. We thank you that you are the God who searches the minds and hearts, and you know each of our works and render to us accordingly. Help us to, to live faithfully uh, for you. We do long to see the gospel take great inroads in our nation, in our world. We pray for that, Lord. We pray that you would do that and you would help us to be faithful in the small tasks in the meantime. We pray in Jesus' name.